We're continuing today with our series called Church Unpacked. Church Unpacked, where we're looking at what the church is and what it isn't. Uh, we're trying to learn and have a deeper understanding of what it means to be a Christian. And in this day and age, the value in terms of what Christians think about church, their value for church is very, very low at the time we live in. Christians don't really understand what the point of church is. Why do we go? Why do we have to do this thing every Sunday, week in, week out? I can just be a Christian at home in my PJs in front of YouTube. That tends to be the kind of value level for church these days. We, as a church, want to move back to a scriptural understanding of what church is supposed to be, to try and enliven us, to try and encourage us to be more effective uh, in the days that we live in, uh, to honor God more after all. That's the purpose of our lives on earth is not to fill ourselves with food and drink and to be merry, but to honor the Lord Jesus Christ, or as the Westminster Confession says, to glorify God and enjoy him forever. So that's our aim through learning from scriptures what church is supposed to be about and our place in it, we hope to honor God more. So let's look today at this passage from 1 Timothy 3. Before we do that, let's offer up some prayers to the Lord. Father God, we thank you that the truth of those words in the Belgic Confession tells us that you've not left your people unguided in this world. You've not left us without a guide rail to lead us to you, but you have left, left us the word of God, your very words in the Holy Scriptures, in the Old and the New Testament. And these are not words that were written by men who decided what they thought about God and then put it down on paper, but actually you used men through the power of the Holy Spirit to write down your words, which are infallible. They never fail and they are inerrant. They do not err on any issue in which they treat. And so, God, we have a sure and certain guide as to know how to live in this world because of the Bible. Our Lord, we thank you for its inspiration. We thank you, Lord, that we come today not to hear the words of a man or a pastor or a visionary, but the word of God himself. And Lord, we pray that you might work in our hearts today. You might deposit a seed that grows and, and gives much fruit, Lord God, because of what we hear today. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's read together then. I'm reading from the English Standard Version. If I delay, you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God which is the church of the living God, a pillar and buttress of the truth. If you have a different translation, it may read something like the church of the living God, the pillar and ground of truth. Uh, you may have various different readings of that text. And we're going to get into why that is today, because understanding the differences in translations sometimes can be helpful, can't it? It can be helpful as we learn to understand what God's Word says and what it doesn't. I have seven points to work through today. Seven points to get through in the next half an hour. And if I don't get through them, my wife will be gesticulating wildly at me to stop. So uh, don't worry, I've got two timers, one on my iPad and one over there. Uh, so the first point I'm going to make, the first point of today's sermon is two wrongs don't make a right. Two wrongs don't make a right. We've all heard that, haven't we? Growing up in school, growing up in my household, my mum and dad, two wrongs don't... You know, my sister pinched me. Well, that doesn't mean you can slap her. 
You know, I remember one incident at home there once when two wrongs definitely didn't make a right, which was, uh, <laughs> it's bad. Um, <laughs> um, there was an incident that involved a dartboard. I got a dartboard for like my 10th birthday and uh, it was in my bedroom and I was getting good with my left hand and I thought I'm going to try with my right hand. And my sister happened to be under the dartboard at the time. It didn't end well. But um, anyway, <laughs> that's a story for another day. But two wrongs don't make a right. And the same is true of Bible interpretations. The same is true of Bible interpretations, okay? Because there's a Roman Catholic interpretation of this verse. Did you know that? There's a Roman Catholic interpretation of this verse that teaches that the Church of Rome, that is the Roman Catholic Church, was the pillar and the foundation of all truth. Because that's what the text says, isn't it? And of course, the Roman Church claims to be the church, capital T, capital C, and they don't consider us to be the Church of Jesus Christ, actually. Though I have friends who are Catholic, who are born again, we're not saying that all Catholics are not Christians. We are saying, however, that the doctrine of the Roman Catholic Church is erroneous, it's false. Uh, therefore, we don't celebrate the, the Mass. We don't believe in the representation of the sacrifice of Jesus. It was done once for all. Uh, and we don't believe that the Pope today is an apostle with the same authority and power as the first century apostles. We don't believe that. But that doesn't mean to say that there aren't faithful Catholics out there. Okay? Um, but this interpretation of this verse by the Catholic Church caused lots of consternation amongst Protestants in the Reformation period. And I've read, you know, that interpretation, the Roman Catholic one, that the Roman Catholic Church is the pillar and foundation of all truth. And therefore, if the Catholic Church says it's true, it's true. And if the Catholic Church says that you're in error, you're in error. And that's the end of it. That's a false interpretation of this text. And we'll get into why. We'll get into why that is, because in the Greek, it doesn't actually say what they think it says. However, do you know, sometimes when you want to prove somebody wrong, when you realize that somebody's wrong about their interpretation, did you know that sometimes, because of your zeal to refute error, you can end up making the same mistake? You can end up making the same mistake. And I've read some really poor Protestant interpretations of this passage as well where they're making this be about Timothy they're saying no 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 Paul's not saying that the church is the pillar and foundation of truth they're saying that Timothy Timothy himself he's the pillar and foundation of the truth but that's really contrived that's stretching the text isn't it we can see that obviously because the the apostle Paul says how one ought to behave in the household of God which is the church of the living God and straight away a pillar and buttress of truth. There's no mention of Timothy there. You've got to be really dicing the verse up to make it say that this is about Timothy. Okay, so two wrongs don't make a right. Brothers and sisters, don't let your zeal for exposing error, and I will explain later why you should have zeal to expose error. Okay, you should, as a Christian, hate false doctrine. You should hate it. Why? Because Jesus hates it. Christians... Bums begin to squeak in seats when I say the word hate. But Jesus literally says, I hate false teaching. In your Bible, I hate it. Why don't you hate false teaching? Why don't you want to talk about it? Why do you get awkward when we talk about false teaching? You shouldn't. Even as kids. 
Jesus hates false teaching because he loves the truth. If you love truth, you've got to hate error. Okay? Two sides of the same coin. But two wrongs don't make a right. Don't let your zeal for exposing error lead you into error yourself. It's easy to do. And it's the same when somebody sins against you. It's very easy when somebody wrongs you to become sinful yourself in the way you respond to them, isn't it? We need the Holy Spirit to help us when we read the text of Scripture. We need the Holy Spirit to help us not to fall into that error of trying to prove ourselves right, but instead trying to understand what the Lord is saying to us. So let's, let's understand why it is that Paul's not referring to Timothy here. He's not saying that Timothy's the pillar and foundation of truth. He's saying the church is. But let's also see why it is that he's not saying that the church itself is the definer of truth. He's not saying that either because we know from Ephesians chapter 2, 19 and 20 that the church already has a foundation. It's already got one. It doesn't need another. And the church can't be its own foundation either. Ephesians 2, 19 and 20 says, So then you're no longer strangers and aliens, but you're fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. You see again in that language, church is a household of God. It's where he dwells today. He has a dwelling place on earth. Did you know that? And it's in his church. It's amongst his people. You personally are the temple of God. You have the Holy Spirit living in you right now. And when we come together, church, there is a special presence of God. Whether we're always aware of that physically or not is not, it's not an issue. The point is, this gathering right here is where God lives on earth. And it has a foundation built on what? What's the church built on? The foundation of the apostles, the prophets, and Christ Jesus being the cornerstone. That's the foundation of the church. Not modern day apostles, not Apostle Bill from up the road and Prophet Susan, but the actual apostles in the first century who wrote the New Testament. That's the foundation of the church. We already have the revelation of God. We don't need a new one. We've got a foundation. Thank you very much. It's been laid. Cheers. Okay. So Paul is not referring to Timothy being the pillar and foundation of truth. Although he does talk about elsewhere in the New Testament as the apostles being pillars. Do you know where that is? In the book of Galatians. Do you remember? Where Paul travels up to Jerusalem, doesn't he? He wants to check that what he's been preaching is faithful. And he goes up and in Galatians 2.9, he says, James and Cephas, who, or that's Peter, James and Peter, who appeared to be pillars. Okay, So he does call people pillars elsewhere, but right here he's talking about the church. He's talking about the church. He's making a definition about what we are. He says that we are here, and also the universal church, we are the pillar and buttress of truth. Okay, But I want to make a couple of distinctions first. How many of you know what a definite article is? Here's a li- an English lesson. Kids, do you know what a definite article is? An indefinite article? They learn more these days at school than we did when we were kids. We were just given like a little book to read, whereas these guys learn about verbs and adjectives and pronouns and all things like that. A definite article is what? Anyone want to hazard a guess? 
the, the, or the, however you want to say it. The definite article is the in English. What's an indefinite article? A, a. So a bucket would be a bucket. The bucket would be the bucket, okay? It's more specific. That's what an article is. And in the English language, articles make all, all the difference, don't they? All of the difference. So in the Greek in this verse, it doesn't say the church is the pillar and the ground of a truth. It doesn't say that. It says a pillar and ground of the truth. So it's not the pillar and ground, it's a pillar and ground of the truth. So the truth has a definite article, it's the truth, not a truth, not your truth, not my truth, but the truth. How many of you understand if you're a Christian you have to believe in objective truth? You have to believe that some things are true and some things are false, and that we can know the difference between the two. If you don't believe that, you're not a Christian, okay? Christians believe in objective, absolute truth. And that's what this verse is talking about, the truth. However, it doesn't say the pillar and the buttress, but a pillar. Now, that's interesting. We'll get into why that's interesting later, okay? Because I think Paul's talking specifically here about Timothy's church, the church in Ephesus. You are supposed to be a pillar and a buttress of truth. Now, this is another issue here. It doesn't say foundation. That's not actually the word that's used here, although it is what's translated into English in many translations. The actual Greek word is hedrioma, hedrioma, and it appears just once in the whole New Testament. Just once, okay? And actually, what this word means, I'll read from a quote from a, a commenter who, who makes a really good point here. He says, there's no clear evidence that the rare word hadriama ever means ground or foundation. It is rather in accordance with almost universal Latin rendering. It means a stay or a bulwark, which we don't really use that word. But here's some more, here's some easier words that we kind of use in English that mean what this Greek word means. Thus, hadriama or mainstay is akin to a physical structure that protects from external forces or pressure, much like a seawall protects from the battering waves. Okay, so what Paul's saying, he's not saying you, the church, are the foundation of truth. Truth stands or falls dependent on what you say. He's not saying that the church is the arbiter of truth, but he's saying you're the pillar, you hold it up, and you're the support, you protect it, from being attacked by outside pressures. So it's a support or a mainstay, not a foundation. I think that's the correct reading. And we'll get into why that's important shortly, okay? Point number two, this is a definition of the church. What Paul's saying here is a definition of what we, as Christians, are supposed to be. Okay, the whole of the letter of 1 Timothy, how many of you have read 1 Timothy through? Always a good idea to sit down, isn't it, and to read these short epistles through in one go to really get what Paul's trying to say. The whole of 1 Timothy is actually Paul encouraging Timothy to hold fast to the truth 
of God and to refute the errors of false teachers who Paul says were in the church at Ephesus. How many of you understand there could be false teachers in this city? You ever thought of that? Why don't pastors talk about this? It's a problem because when we understand that there's a danger, okay, when we understand there's a threat, we defend ourselves appropriately, don't we? If we're lulled into a false sense of security, everything's fine. There's no issues here. There's no threat. How many of you understand we're not going to be prepared for when the threat does come? Most false prophets in the Old Testament, guess what their message was? Everything's fine. You guys are blessed. Everything's you don't have to worry. There's no threat. There's no danger. No enemy nations are going to come and destroy Jerusalem. Don't worry about it. Guess what the faithful prophets said? The faithful prophets always said, listen, if you don't repent, God's going to judge you. If you don't repent, he's going to send the Babylonians or the Syrians or whoever to come destroy Jerusalem. So repent. Turn back to God's word immediately. Guess what all the prophets are like these days? You're blessed. You're blessed. There's nothing to worry about. There's nothing to fear. You're the head, not the tail. Yada, yada, yada. All right? Doesn't that worry you? There's no pastors in pulpits asking you to read the scriptures. There's no pastors in pulpits telling you that there's false teachers out there actually trying to deceive you. But the real apostles tell you that there are. Church, we need to wake up. We need to wake up. You need to know your Bibles. You need to know doctrine. You need to be bothered about this stuff. Unless you'd like to be led astray. Each of us must take care of our own soul. Work out our, our salvation with fear and trembling. Paul's eager to encourage Timothy. Hold fast to the truth. Preach the truth. Preach the whole counsel of God. Refute errors. He says, silence false teachers. Don't let them speak. Don't let them speak. And what Paul says of the church is that it is a pillar and a mainstay of the truth. It's a definition. It's not just a suggestion of what the church would like to try and be. He says, no, it is that. That's what the church is. It's a definition. How many of you understand what the dictionary says about definition? Yesterday I had to Google, what's the definition of definition? <laughs> Merriam-Webster says it's a statement expressing the essential nature of a thing. So let me tell you, the essential nature of the church is that it's a pillar and a bulwark of the truth. That's what church is. That's what it is, okay? So we're learning something today about what it means to be a member of the church of God. It means something to do with you and I being part of the pillars and foundations, not foundations, bulwark of the truth, okay? So, third point, the truth. The truth, not a truth, not your truth, not my truth. The truth. So what truth it is, is it that we're supposed to be a pillar of? What truth is it that we're supposed to be upholding and preserving? Well, it's certainly not popular opinion. We're not called as church to be the pillars and foundations of popular opinion, prevailing attitudes in our nations. 
We're not called to be that. That's not what church is. Nor are we called to be the pillar and buttress of the preferences of individual members. We're not called to champion one, one each other's truths. You know, Sister Deborah's going to come up here. She's going to tell us what she believes about God. Now, now, Brother Andrew, he's going to come up here. He's going to tell us his thoughts about what he thinks God is. Oh, my gosh. But this is what many churches are doing today. They're not a pillar and bulwark of the truth. They're a pillar and a bulwark of popular opinion. That's what's happening in the Church of England today. Did you know this? In the House of Bishops, over 95% of all bishops just voted to bless something that God curses. Are you awake? Are you awake right now? 95% of bishops in the Church of England just voted to bless something that God curses. How many of you understand they are not a pillar and bulwark of God's truth? They're a pillar and bulwark of something else. Popular opinions. What man has to say about life and how we should do relationship? We're not called to be a pillar and bulwark of the opinions of man. But of the truth. Of the truth. The truth. Definite article. Capital T. Capital T. Okay? The truth. To belong to the church of Jesus Christ is to believe that there is such a thing as the truth. The truth. There is an objective and knowable truth. It's not just that there is a truth out there somewhere and nobody can know it. We're all just kind of groping around and there is some stuff in Acts 17 about that. But this isn't what the church is about. The church is in possession of the truth. The church is not searching for the truth. It has possession of the truth. Otherwise, it can't be a pillar of it. We possess the truth. Okay, And that's why as a Christian, we believe in preaching the gospel. How many of you understand you can't preach something if you don't know the contents of it? If you're not confident that the gospel is true, you won't ever tell anybody about it. To be a Christian is not to be agnostic. But so many Christians behave like agnostics. Well, you know, this is what I believe, but you know, what you believe is great too. We're all probably going to be in the same place eventually. Unfortunately, that's just not what the Bible says. We're in possession of the truth. There's only one truth. Absolutely. Absolutely. So what is this one truth that we're supposed to be a pillar and a bulwark of? What is it? It's God's truth. It's his truth. It belongs to him. Psalm 119, 160. It's a long psalm, isn't it, that? 119, flipping heck. You ever sat down and read that through in one go? Hey, did you know actually that it's arranged in the Hebrew alphabet? Did you know this? So in Hebrew, when you read 119, okay, it, you know it goes Aleph, Bet, Gimel, Dalet, Hey, right? There's little sections of it. Well, in Hebrew, every... The first letter of each word in those sections begins with that letter in the alphabet. So when you're reading Aleph, every word in Hebrew in that 
first stanza begins with an Aleph. It's just it's a piece of poetry. It's incredible. Psalm 119 says, The very essence of your words is truth. The very essence of the word of God is truth. All your just regulations will stand forever. There's never going to be a time when God's word is out of fashion. There's never going to be a time when it becomes irrelevant. Now, I'm all for the church trying to meet culture in a way that makes sense, okay? I'm all for us trying to contextualize, but I'm not for us changing the message. God's word is always relevant. There's never going to be a time when humans don't need a savior. Until Christ returns, all humans are going to need a savior from sin. And there's only one savior. There's only one name given under heaven by which man must be saved, and that is Jesus Christ. And so a church is nothing. It's nothing unless it's a pillar and support of God's truth. John Calvin said, Paul will not acknowledge the church except where God's truth is exalted and plain. That means the Apostle Paul, if he were to walk into many a church building today, he would say, this is not a church. I don't care if there's a cross on the front. I don't care if the guy behind the pulpit's got a dog collar on. If they're not preaching God's truth, this is not a church. Call it whatever you want, but it's not Church of Jesus Christ. Call it a social club. Call it a community project with a very distinct vision. But it's not the Church of Jesus Christ because it doesn't proclaim and uphold the truth of Jesus Christ. Do you understand? Do you hear me? Amen. Come on. Who's heard of Charles Spurgeon? Who's heard of the downgrade controversy? Charles Spurgeon sunk into a deep depression near the end of his life. It's very sad. Towards the end of his time, he was a Baptist minister in London. He used to draw crowds of 5,000 people to his prayer meetings. In these days, you can't get 5,000 people to a Christian conference, let alone a prayer meeting. 5,000 people to his prayer meetings, okay? In the last days of his time as a minister here on earth, he was taken at the young age of around 56. In the last days of his ministry, he got into a controversy because he was a Baptist minister. He believed that the Bible was the word of God, infallible, inerrant. It was what the saints needed to hear in order to be built up in the faith. But Baptist ministers in the uni at the time started saying things like, well, the Bible's not the word of God. It contains the word of God because it talks about Jesus, but it's not the word of God. You know, it's the best ideas of men throughout the ages of what they thought about God. But it's not inerrant. It's not infallible. It makes errors. It, it, it gets things wrong. But we can still more or less use it and, and, and run with it. But we don't think it's the word of God. They started making these small changes in doctrine. Small changes, just kind of undermining the, the sufficiency of Scripture is what we read about earlier. And Spurgeon said, mark my words, in a hundred years, this church will be in ruins. In ruins, like cults. Did you know, a Protestant minister visited Metropolitan Tabernacle in London, where Spurgeon was a preacher in the 1970s. In the 1970s. So we're only talking less than a hundred years from when Spurgeon was preaching there. And he spoke to a lady there. She said, you know what? 
When Spurgeon was here, we got 5,000 to the prayer meetings. Germany, we get now, we're lucky if we get 15. And when you look at the state of the Baptist Union today, Spurgeon was right. Once we start undermining, devaluing Scripture as being the Word of God, we don't uphold the truth any longer, mark my words, that thing will crumble. That thing will crumble. So point number four, we've established that what it is that we're supposed to uphold is the truth. It's God's truth. And that the church of Jesus Christ will uphold that truth. And if it doesn't, it's what? Not the church of Jesus Christ. Not the church of Jesus Christ. But how many churchgoers these days actually pick their church based on what's preached? I'll tell you, it's one in ten. You did. Most churchgoers pick churches not on what's preached. They pick churches on how good's the coffee. How good's the community? How friendly is the pastor? How friendly are people when they come in? These aren't bad things, but they shouldn't be the top level decision that you make on where you go to church. It should be, what's actually being preached in this church? What do they believe? What do they proclaim? Because if they're not proclaiming the word of God, it ain't a church. Go and find somewhere else. Well, we give God all the glory for that. We give God all the glory for that. Exactly. And the Lord is drawing people, isn't he? We're not saying we're exclusively the only church that does this. Far, far from it. There are many faithful churches. We're trying to treat God's truth as the thing we ought to be upholding. And that's what we should be making decisions about. But what is it to be a pillar? What is it for you to be a pillar of God's truth? What does it mean for this church to be a pillar of God's truth. Well, I wanted to get a picture up for you, but I didn't have time to do it today. But in Ephesus, where Timothy actually was, where he was pastoring, there was a false idol that was worshipped. Do you remember what that idol was called? Diana. And there was a temple of Artemis in Ephesus. I know a few of you have actually been to Ephesus, haven't you? And you've seen the ruins, maybe. But back in the day, this temple of Artemis was this huge building. And it looked like the Acropolis. You know the Acropolis in Athens? The big pillars and that classical kind of uh, triangular roof. It looked like that. Now if you go to Ephesus, all you'll see is a few pillars remaining. But no roof any longer. It's caved in a long, long time ago. Now on top of the roof on the temple of Artemis, there was actually words. There were words inscribed all around it. So the pillars were holding up this roof with an inscription on it for every person passing by to see. So the pillars held up the roof in order that everyone might see the inscription on the outside of it. Now that's what it means for the church to be a pillar. We are upholding the truth. We are presenting and proclaiming God's truth to the world that they might see it, okay? Jesus said, no one lights a lamp and puts it under a basket. Instead, a lamp is placed on a stand. It gives light to everyone in the house. And Paul himself, in Acts 20, 27, he speaks of the church in Ephesus. He mentions them. He says, I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole counsel of God. 
the whole counsel of God. How many of you understand that you don't just need bits of truth, you don't just need certain portions of scripture, you need the whole counsel of God. That's why we preach the Old and the New Testament here. You don't just need John 3.16. You don't just need 1 John 4.16, God is love. You need the whole counsel of God. So as a pillar, we're supposed to be proclaiming the truth. Not just knowing it, but proclaiming it. The truth of the gospel. The truth of the gospel particularly. What is the gospel? What is it? It's a great question to ask. I used to think the gospel was, hey man, Jesus loves you. See you later. There's truth in that, but I don't the gospel. Amen. 1 Corinthians 15 is a great place to go to understand what the gospel is. It's one of the earliest presentations of the gospel. But let me tell you, this, this, these are the truths we've got to be proclaiming. These are the truths you need to be proclaiming and believing and rejoicing in. You need the gospel every day. The gospel isn't just for unbelievers. You understand that the gospel's for us. It's our inheritance. And we actually wash ourselves with it and cleanse ourselves with it every day. We remind, us, we remind ourselves that God is holy. God is God. And God is holy. He's not a genie in a bottle. If we rub him the right way, he'll give us what we want. He's God. He's free. He's sovereign. And he's a holy God. Secondly, we proclaim that man is sinful. And man is unable to save himself. There's nothing he can do to save himself. He needs God. Thirdly, we proclaim God's love and grace in sending Christ to die the perfect sacrifice as the perfect sacrifice for the sins of all mankind that all those who would be saved must repent and believe in Christ and Christ alone these are the truths that we proclaim what does it mean for us to be a bulwark or a buttress of truth point five you see, the church has two functions. We're both the pillar and the bulwark of truth. One is offensive in terms of proclaiming the truth, but the other is defensive. We're not just to herald the, God, the truth of God, but we're also to preserve the truth of God, to protect it from outside influence. You ever read the book of Jude, a very short book near the end of your Bible? In Jude 3 and 4, it says, Beloved, Although I was very eager to write to you about our common salvation, I found it necessary to write appealing to you to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. For certain people have crept in unnoticed who long ago were designated for this condemnation, ungodly people who pervert the grace of our God into sensuality and deny our only Master and Lord Jesus Christ. As a mainstay for truth... As a bulwark of truth, we are to fight for the truth, to contend for the truth. That means we've got to assume that there will be unbiblical, even heretical teachings which are circulating in Christian communities right now in Wolverhampton, even in this community. Okay? And these teachings might sound plausible. They might sound very clever. They might sound interesting. They might actually go to work for us on a certain level. 
How many of you have noticed that it's possible to benefit from a false teaching on one level? Right? Just because a false teaching works for you doesn't mean it's true. Right? Second Peter tells us that these false teachings, right? though they sound plausible, though they sound interesting, though they sound kind of fun, he says, false prophets arose from among the people, just as there will be false teachers among you who bring in secretly destructive heresies. Heresy is destructive. False teaching does damage. Unbiblical teachings are not just kind of like, well, it doesn't matter. You know, we'll just let the wheat and the tares grow up together. They are destructive. They do damage to Christians. One of the most dangerous things in church today, as I've said, is pastors who never talk about false teaching. Never talk about false teaching. Never mention false teachers. Don't warn the sheep about these errors. They don't call it out. It's like it doesn't exist. Guess what? That's not being a pillar and a buttress of truth. Theology matters, brothers and sisters. Doctrine divides. Yeah. It divides between truth and error. I would rather be divided because of truth than united in error. I want unity in the body of Christ. But I want unity around God's truth. Do you know... <laughs> I was reading about this yesterday. I'm about to finish up. But there's a false teaching that's actually an unbiblical teaching that's preached from pulpits all around the world. And most of you, like me, probably believed it. Right? There was a heresy that was condemned in the early church called Pelagianism. Pelagianism. It was a British monk, actually, who taught that only Adam actually fell in sin. And that all humans after Adam are born not with an indwelling sin in their flesh, but rather they follow after Adam of their own free will. Okay? That's Pelagianism. It was condemned by the early church as heretical. But there's a development of it called semi-Pelagianism. Semi-Pelagianism, which was also condemned by the early church at the Council of Orange in the 6th century. And this semi-Pelagianism taught that we are all born with a completely free will, able to choose God or not. And the church called that heresy. Unbiblical. But I tell you what, it's 90% of what you'll hear if you go to any church. That's not Arminianism. Arminianism teaches you need grace before you choose God. They call it provenient grace. A Calvinist will call it effectual grace. Doesn't matter. We have unity, whether you're Arminian, Calvinist. If you're in that region, okay. We can have a discussion about that. But let me tell you, most Christians don't believe that. They believe that they are the initiators of their own salvation. That they were born with a, an unfettered free will. That's just simply not what the Bible teaches. It says, Ephesians 2, you were dead in your trespasses and sins. But God, not but you, but God. He was the actor in your salvation. He was the first mover. He was the initiator of your salvation. That's why we say, he gets all the glory. Soli Deo Gloria. To God alone be the glory for your salvation. So what do we do to remain a mainstay of the truth? What can we do personally to make sure we are preserving and upholding God's truth in our lives? Because 
It's how it works. It's got to work on an individual level in this church. It can't just be me. It can't just be the leaders. We all have a responsibility here to be pillars and mainstays of God's truth. You all have been given a responsibility to disciple, to raise people up in the way they should go, haven't you? We've all got this responsibility. So what, what can we do today? We can read God's word. We can love God's word. We can love God's word. We can put it in front of us first thing every day. Whether it's a paper Bible, whether it's you version, I don't care. But we need to get in front of his word. Secondly, listen to verse by verse exposition of the scriptures. Not just feel good messages. If you're here visiting this church and you choose not to come here, that's fine. But go to a church where they teach the Bible. Go to a church where they go verse by verse. Don't find a church that makes you feel good. Find one that teaches the Bible. Thirdly, familiarize yourself with historic creeds and confessions of the Christian faith. Familiarize yourself with them. Get to know them. The Apostles' Creed, the Nicene Creed. It's not legalism. The church has been tricked by the devil in these days to treat historic, orthodox Christian confessions of faith as religious and dead and worth nothing. Creeds and confessions could be helpful. I'm not saying they're the same level as the Bible, but they'll help you to understand what the Bible teaches. Because if you don't hold to biblical confessions of faith, you'll hold to unbiblical ones. We've actually got some free copies of the Westminster Confession of Faith in little booklet form at the back. All right? You probably won't agree with everything in there. There'll always be a level of disagreement on the smaller matters. But for the big things, it's brilliant. And it's got scriptural references in there. Pick one up for free on the way out if you're interested. Let's get familiar with these things. Listen to some good discernment ministries. How many of you listened to Mike Winger before? Go check out Mike Winger, okay? He just did a video about Bethel Church. How many of you heard of Bethel Church, okay? Now I've actually been there twice. I've been out to Bethel Reading. And I'm not going to stand here and say that everyone there is not a Christian. I don't believe that. I met some real solid believers out there who have encouraged me greatly. What I will say is, you should mark and avoid it now as a ministry on the basis of what Mike Winger has taught. There's a book out there called The Physics of Heaven which says that we as Christians should be going to the New Age movement and taking practices from the New Age and bringing it into church. We should be doing Holy Ghost palm readings. Did you know that? That's what Bethel teaches. I've been in that bookstore and it sells that book. Little tarot cards, Christian tarot cards. But this is one of the most popular, famous church movements out there. Nobody's got their brain switched on. Please watch discernment ministries, good ones. I'm not talking about the ones that say everyone's a heretic apart from them. Okay? Know your false teachers. Paul says name them. He actually calls them out by name. All right? Many pastors are afraid to do this. Let me tell you right now. Don't listen, stop listening to Benny Hinn. Stop listening to Kenneth Copeland. Stop listening to Jesse Duplantis. These people are false prosperity preachers. People will say to me, I'll chew the meat and spit the bones. Well, even the devil says some things are true. Should we chew the meat and spit the bones? We have to be careful, brothers and sisters. We have to know the difference between true and false teaching. Because guess what? There's not a church of Ephesus today. There isn't one. It's gone. Whatever happened 
we can assume that they failed to continue to be a pillar and bulwark of the truth. In fact, the last thing we read about in Scripture about the church of Ephesus is in the book of Revelation. Jesus speaks about them. Let's read it. Revelation 2, verses 1 to 7. To the angel of the church of Ephesus, write... The words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks among the seven golden lampstands. I know your works, your toil and your patient endurance, and how you cannot bear with those who are evil, but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not, and found them to be false. I know you're enduring patiently and bearing up for my name's sake. You've not grown weary, but I have this against you. You've abandoned the love you had at first Remember, therefore, from where you've fallen. Repent and do the works that you did at first. If not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. Yet this you have. You hate the works of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. He who has an ear to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Brothers and sisters, don't separate the love of God from love of his truth. Let's return to our first love. Let's return to the works we did at first, when we would wake and pray, when we would wake and read our Bible, when we would tell people about Christ and about the gospel, when we would wake and ask, Lord, please revive me in my heart. Please, Lord, I, you know what? Sometimes I pray things like this, Lord, I don't care enough about the lost. If I'm being really honest with you, I don't care enough that people are going to hell. I don't care enough. I'm not interested enough. Lord, please help me. I want to have a hunger for these things. We can be honest with the Lord in prayer. We've got to love the truth, but just like Jesus, we've got to hate the error. Do you hate error today? Do you hate false teaching today? Do you long for the truth? Because Jesus does. I'll finish with this. Charles Spurgeon said, Remember that our Bible is a bloodstained book. The blood of martyrs is on the Bible. The blood of translators and confessors. The pool of holy baptism in which many have been baptized is a bloodstained pool full of many who've had to die for the vindication, which is the answer of a good conscience towards God. The doctrines which we preach to you are doctrines that have been baptized in blood. Swords have been drawn to slay the confessors of them, and there is not a truth which has not been sealed by them at the stake or the block or far away on lofty mountains where they've been slain by hundreds. It is but a little duty we have to discharge compared with theirs. Every truth in your Bible was paid for by the blood of Christ and then by his martyrs. People have died to preserve these truths. Let's at least stand for them, shall we, in our day? Let's at least confess that we haven't valued these truths as much as we ought have. Let's ask the Lord to revive us with a fresh passion for his truth again. And let's preach the gospel to the world and to ourselves each day. Let's stand together. I'm going to ask Eddie going to come again. Just lead us in a final song. Father, we thank you for your truth. Lord, we pray that you would make us more zealous for it. You would help us as a church to maintain being a pillar and a bulwark of the truth. Lord, we ask for strength in this work. It's all going to fail unless your Holy Spirit's with us. So we pray, strengthen us today. Strengthen us as a church to uphold these wonderful, glorious 
truths of your word. We pray in the name of Jesus. Amen.